Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week we are starting our summer break with a rebroadcast of an episode that first aired back at the end of 2019. Our guest is Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University, who joined us to discuss his book, Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. And I thought this was an interesting episode to share right now because we are in this moment when many of us are getting back out into the world after 15 months or so of our COVID isolation. We've all been stuck inside on our computers and our phones and in our own little worlds, perhaps. And now we're going back out into the world. And so how do we think about the role that politics should occupy in that space? Robert is also the host of a podcast called Why We Argue, and he recently published an interview with Cornell West that was really good. I highly recommend checking that out. And he has a new book coming out this fall called Sustaining Democracy, What We Owe the Other Side. I'm sure we will have him on the show to talk about that book when it comes out later this year. But for now, uh, here is our conversation from December of 2019. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to the last episode of Democracy Works for 2019. Another year in the books, you guys. Our guest is Robert Talese, a professor at Vanderbilt University and author of a new book called Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. And his argument uh, is that, like, Like a lot of things, you can overdo it when it comes to either following politics, being engaged in politics, uh, and he's saying maybe it's it's worthwhile to to take a step back. No, 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 maybe about it. He thinks that if you do if you overdo democracy, you undermine democracy. Yeah, That's it's a re- really interesting argument. Mm-hmm. I thought and a very readable and nicely written book, and it is a it is an interesting argument that draws together a lot of research and topics that we've talked about as well about uh, polarization and its effect on our the consequences for our politics, along with, uh, you know, some, some ideas we've heard from other people about how we should be conducting our politics mm-hmm, differently. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, he's a, he's a political philosopher, and so he brings this perspective that I, that, you know, from my background, I find I really appreciate the idea that it is not enough to talk about democracy in terms of institutions and procedures. It is fundamentally a moral proposition that that there's this um, standard that human beings should be afforded in terms of just um, being able to express their own dignity. And so that I liked. And I also thought, you know, he does bring in variety of disciplines, evidence to support this idea that um, what is democracy for and how does it fit into a, a well-ordered human society? Yeah, I thought, I thought the, the strength of the book from, uh, from my perspective was its somewhat different take on polarization and its consequences. Let's say more about that. Well, he's arguing, consistent with where so much of the empirical literature is, that one consequence of polarization and sorting among the public in terms of lifestyle choices, in terms of media sources, in terms of where we shop, and of course, in terms of our politics, Mm -hmm. the sort of tribalism that we've discussed many, many times, that it's led to, in a sense, as I understand the argument, it's led to 
too much politics. Right. We can't escape it. We can't escape it. That we're, we're, we're living within, in, in almost everything we do, we're within these sort of homogenous or politically homogenous groupings. Uh, our views are getting constantly reinforced. And we are seeing those outside of our groupings increasingly in negative terms. Right. And, and the other part of that argument that I thought was kind of uh, distinctive and new, I hadn't heard it before, is that because these uh, environs are becoming more politically or more partisanly predictable, i.e. that, you know, when we're in Starbucks or Walmart, we can make assumptions about the partisanship of the people that are there, those spaces that used to be not very political are becoming more political. It's more likely that you're going to get that kind of partisan expression. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he had me thinking about something that I know I've noticed about my own life since Donald Trump's election that he frames somewhat differently and has me thinking probably extends earlier, earlier than Donald Trump's election. And that is, you know, I often think we spend far too much time these days focused on our president. And this has come up a few times before because it's kind of characteristic of authoritarian regimes, actually, where you are are constantly asked to focus on the leader. I mean, if you take something like the extreme cases, like in North Korea, right, where there's a portrait of the leader in in everybody's room. And, you know, if you think back to to the book 1984, Mm -hmm. where the leader Mm -hmm. is right beamed into your house. And, you know, even on even on holidays and vacations, Donald Trump is in our He's all over the media. He's in our head. He's tweeting. He's saying something outrageous. We're constantly focused on him. We're constantly talking about him. There's something kind of unhealthy about that. Yeah. And especially in a democracy right. where we shouldn't have to be thinking about the leader all the time. That's kind of the idea. But but his way of looking at it is different from anything else we've really looked at because, uh, you know, he's saying we're just – it's just too much politics. Mm-hmm. Let's just back mm-hmm. off. Let's do nonpolitical things. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're able to deal with one another, even people that we disagree with politically um, as equals, as sharers in a, in a social enterprise – uh, and and trying to get back some of that, which has really been lost in polarization, where we tend to see our opponents uh, not as civic friends, but as but in, in terms of uh, enmity. Right, I agree with that, and I also like the fact that this notion of civic friendship is not uh, mealy mouth. Right, it, you don't have to like the person, you don't have to certainly don't have to agree with them. You can think they're nuts or they're you know um, completely wrong. But you still are required to um, affirm their equal standing in this democracy and respect them as, as, as in that in those terms, and then you also just have to assume the that we can we can uh, exist together peaceably, leaving aside these fundamental and very important political uh, differences. Yep. Well, probably a good point to bring the interview in. Yeah, I think we've we've laid out laid out the arguments and maybe some counter arguments. So uh, lots to consider as we listen to my interview with Robert Talese. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Robert Talese. Bob, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Well, thank you, Jenna, for having me. So uh, your new book, Overdoing Democracy, uh, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place, um, talks a lot about democracy and about politics. And I, I, my, my impression was that you kind of use those terms uh, interchangeably throughout the book. So I thought a good place to start might be with some definitions um, for, for the context of the, the arguments that, that you're making. How do you define democracy and how do you define 
politics. Well, fabulous. So um, I think of democracy as a series of very familiar to, to, to us and to your listeners, I suspect, uh, institutional, um, procedural, constitutional norms that are all underwritten by a more fundamental moral principle. That is, I think that democracy is at its core uh, the moral proposition uh, that a relatively stable and relatively just social order is possible in the absence of rulers and bosses and kings and uh, and and the like. Um, it's possible instead um, uh, by means of self-government among political equals. So I think of democracy as the the moral uh, the moral commitment to the ideal of self-government among political equals, and what that means is that democracy is, of course, more than uh, the institutional and procedural trappings that we associate with democracy. So we're we're used to thinking of democracy, uh, at least at first blush, as you know a system where we occasionally vote and there's campaigns and, uh, you know, politicians who shake hands and kiss babies and raise money. And sometimes we think of democracy as uh, connected to, you know, protests and various kinds of political activity and, and lobbying. And all of this is true. These are all part of what democracy is. Um, uh, but democracy is also a broader uh, social ideal. It's the ideal of um, living together uh, as equals in a political and social context. And what I think that means is that democracy is a moral solution, poses a moral solution to um, a problem. The problem that democracy uh, proposes a solution to is the problem of um, severe, sometimes, sometimes heated disagreement about politics. Sure. And, uh, you know, we we talk a lot on on this show about how democracy is is hard work. None of these things are easy. Right. And yeah. and I think that the kind of what follows from that sometimes is that this notion that in order to do that, you need to be vigilant. You need to constantly be thinking about these things, about what is what does this this really mean to, to be a good democratic citizen and all these things. And uh, in, in a, a TED talk that you gave, you mentioned that um, your thinking on this has kind of changed from thinking about some, you know democracy as something that needs to be done perpetually or, or all the time to where you are now with this notion of, of overdoing democracy. Uh, can you uh, walk us through what changed in your thinking? Sure. So um, and, and the way that you the way that you just articulated is really helpful. So I, I, I want to sort of disambiguate or, or, or dis keep distinct two different um, ways in which we might talk about the hard work of democracy. As you were just uh, phrasing the question, you know, you said has to, we have to be vigilant. And the vigilance, that kind of intensity, seems to me to be necessary for good democratic citizenship. Now, it strikes me, though, that it's a, a, uh, a kind of misstep Although it's very common, not only among um, uh, ordinary citizens, but you know, well-known democratic theorists, to take the thought that democracy is uh, hard work that requires a certain level of intensity, to entail what strikes me as the quite different thought that democracy requires a kind of perpetual, constant engagement in the role of citizen. I think democracy is a capital social good. 
However, and because it's a capital social good, uh, we, in our roles as democratic citizens, have to, as you were just saying, Jenna, we have to do some hard work. Democracy requires a lot of us. It's a demanding social ideal. Don't want to deny any of that. What I do want to push back on is the idea that um, the best way to pursue our political goals as democratic citizens, a more perfect, egalitarian, uh, just, inclusive uh, society. Uh, the, the, I want to push back on the idea that the, the best strategy we have for pursuing those lofty social ideals by means of democracy is to perpetually be enacting democracy, mm -hmm. perpetually be acting in the role of democratic citizen. I think that sometimes, or let me put it this way, I think that if we want to perform well as democratic citizens and do well by or do right by our goals, our moral goals for a better society, we have to find, or as the case may be, try to construct venues where we can interact with one another in contexts where our politics is simply beside the point. Right. And you, you talk in the book as well about the example of, of people who work out too much, right? So they really, really enjoy working out. And, and on its face, that's like a good thing to do, right? Because you're healthier and more fit, but it can also become detrimental in, in, in the long run. Um, and, and, you know, in thinking about some of the people that we've talked to on this show or just interacted with it, I mean, as, as you know, there are any number of organizations out there that are doing everything from trying to stop gerrymandering to uh, getting money out of politics, all of these kind of pro-democracy form type of actions. And the, the thing that I think runs across all of them is this like underlying fear of if people aren't out there doing these things, there's going to be some like authoritarian or some type of like power structure that is undemocratic that's going to step in and, and take take its place. Right. Um, so, so how do you kind of thinking about this, this notion of creating a space where you can interact without all of the, the kind of political uh, ramifications or, or in a space that's not necessarily solely focused on, on, on democracy or politics, how do you kind of consider that like underlying fear that, that I think people might have about what happens if you stop doing these, these types of things? Sure. So, um, well, let me say one sort of quick thing, and then I want to go back to mm -hmm. the uh, to the exercise, to the mm -hmm. point about fitness. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, the, the proposal that we must put politics in its place or that we have to find ways to stop overdoing democracy isn't the proposal that we withdraw from politics or stop acting in our role as citizen. It's maybe uh, better uh, articulated as we have to make room in addition uh, make room in our lives and in our social spaces for activities of a non-political character in addition to all the things that we have to do for democracy. So in a certain way, the thesis of the book is actually more demanding, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I would never want, and I, I, I take some pains in the book to try to uh, sort of um, guard myself against uh, a, a certain way in which the phrase even overdoing democracy gets heard. Um, so the thesis is not that... Um, you know, everyone needs to just chill out and, you know, politics ain't that important after all. So, you know, you know, it's all small stuff and don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, I, I, I think that um, the, the claim that we have to put politics in its place is fully consistent with a, uh, a conception of democratic citizenship 
that is robust, participatory, deliberative, uh, in some ways, I think, and in certain contexts, I think, uh, and, you know, we've got to be slightly agonistic. That is that democracy is about struggle and protest and resistance. So my thesis about the need to put politics in its place doesn't want to water down the role of democratic citizen. It wants to instead make the argument that in order to perform in that role well, there's something in addition to all of the politicking that we do uh, that has to get done. And that is we have to find avenues to interact with one another in contexts that are not overtly organized around or not even expressive of our partisan allegiances. And now let me just spell that thought out slightly um, uh, more generally with uh, going back to um, uh, the exercise example. Because you're right, there's a clear way of overdoing exercise, uh, and that that's where you, you you work out so much that you wind up, you know, uh, uh, hurting hurting yourself. Um, but there's this other way of overdoing exercise as well, um, and that other way is um, when you devote your time and energy to your fitness routine to such an extent and with such an intensity that your goal. Uh, you know, and we're saying a worthy goal, right? That your goal of becoming fit or achieving some optimal state or, or better state of physical fitness, um, you overdo that, that goal when you allow its pursuit to crowd out other things of value in your life. We lose sight of the fact that as great a good as democracy is, democracy in part owes its value to the fact that a well-functioning democratic society makes available to us opportunities to pursue goods of other kinds. And in the absence of the opportunities to pursue goods of non-political kinds, democracy itself starts to get distorted as a project in the same way sure. that fitness does. That's sure. the thought. That's no way to denigrate or, or to demote the value of democracy. It's just to say we can't lose sight of the fact that part of the point of democracy is goods of other kinds. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we all, I mean, we're all trying to, to achieve balance in, in, in uh, many, many parts of our lives. You can easily turn this into a therapy session or something. Yeah, 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 why, right. why it's difficult to do that. Um, but I think one of the things that makes this notion of, of democracy particularly tricky is that people might not always even know that what they're doing is, is necessarily political. I right. mean, you, you, you also talk a lot about how, the grocery stores that we shop at or the, the brands that we support or we don't are in our culture today in inherently political statements. And so it's it's in some ways more difficult than ever to find space for those things that are are not political. Um, right. so can, can you uh, just kind of talk us through your your thinking about all of these these parts of our lives and how they relate to our political identities and then um, you know, what, where do you go from there, given the, the environment that we're in? Yeah, yeah. So, so here's a, a, a nice way of, of uh, sort of a, a data point, as it were, that, that is, is nice, uh, is helpful in capturing uh, the, the big thought driving uh, uh, this, this part of the argument. Um, you know, as our country has become more diverse along all of the promising metrics that it has, you know, 
uh, greater parts of the population speak other languages than than English. There's greater religious and ethnic uh, and, and racial and gender diversity that is not only present in the country, but welcome in the country. So as the country uh, at the macro level has become more diverse, the local spaces we inhabit in our walkabout, you know, daily activities have become increasingly homogeneous. So in the aggregate, it's a more diverse country. But in our day-to-day -day social environments, the atmosphere within which casual, non-planned social interactions occur, this has all become increasingly homogeneous and politically increasingly homogeneous, such that the person standing next to you, uh, uh, sitting next to you on the bus, the person standing behind you online at the grocery store or in the coffee shop is increasingly likely to have a, a political profile that's just like your own. Uh, 25 years ago, workplaces, schools, uh, local parks, beaches, uh, these, these sort of um, public venues, these, these places where people would get together were far more politically heterogeneous than they are today. So that's a that's a new thing that the that 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 we're our everyday experience is likely to put us in touch only with people who are more or less uh, just like ourselves. Now, here's the second point. Again, there's a, a a much longer, more detailed sort of social scientific explanation of how this came to be that I won't get into. Uh, don't even try to get into in the book, although I just sort of suggest a couple of things. More and more of what we do in those spaces is now understood by us and by others as overt expressions of our political loyalties. And, you know, if you want to um, sort of get the flavor for this, think about tote bags. Mm. <laughs> now, the number of tote bags you own positively correlates with how liberal you are, by the way. Whole Foods tote bags say values matter, which I find pu puzzling. Mm. Uh, that strikes me as um, a tautologist. But, um, you know, uh, the, the uh, MSNBC tote bag says, you know, th this is who we are. Talk politics to me. So these 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 objects carry messaging on them. And there are ways of communicating to others what your political commitments are. And so think about the talk politics to me with the MSNBC tote bag. It's like, oh, this is inviting political conversation while at the same time giving a potential interlocutor warning, <laughs> right? right? More and more of what we do is expressive of and received as a communication of our political allegiances. Our spaces are more politically homogeneous. So now let me stick those two points together. We are more constantly, we are ever more constantly <laughs> acting in the role of citizen under conditions that are politically homogeneous and therefore not exactly properly democratic. Right. Well, and I mean, it's also, I think you could argue in the interest of a lot of these companies to reinforce these, these political messages. I mean, if I put on like my marketer hat for a second, I mean, yep. it's all about like finding your niche audience and you, you know, a lot of times go through the exercise of creating a persona for who your target customer is. And that usually includes something about, if not explicitly their, their political party affiliation, at least about what they value or, or don't value. So there's like a, a financial incentive incentive for this type of thing to continue. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so right. We can tell there's a, there's a perfectly um, uh, clear 
story of the kind that you just began telling that seems to me to be exactly right that well you know technology has enabled the merging of political campaigning with marketing and branding right <laughs> right mm -hmm. candidates parties uh political campaigns are now run and designed and orchestrated by the very same people who are selling us cars and beer and toothpaste and by way of the same techniques what has enabled that merger is that, again, due to complicated social forces that we can talk about, if you like, our political identity has become, over the past 25 years, ever more central to our overall understanding of who we are as individuals. Our politics have become more central to our self-conception as, as individuals, as people. Our role as citizen and our identity as citizen has become more central to how we understand ourselves, even in our everyday uh, um, uh, interactions. And here's one sort of quick um, uh, implication of this. You know, we hear a lot uh, of, of um, sort of lamenting about um, polarization, uh, political polarization, the dropping out of the middle, the, the receding of the common ground, what leads to uh, intransigence among uh, politicians and parties and rancor and all the rest. And all of that stuff is lamentable. I wouldn't deny that, although, you know, democracy, you know, is, uh, is about struggles, in my view. So, you know, I don't think that uh, democracy can uh, uh, exercise uh, all of that from, from its profile. However, Partisan animosity, that is animosity towards the people you perceive to be your political others, has skyrocketed in the last 20 years, despite the fact that actual differences among rank-and-file citizens over pretty central policy proposals, have those divisions haven't become more severe. In many cases, they've moderated. So we actually fight less, we have less to fight about, about policy <laughs> but we hate each other more. And here's the important thing, that animosity, you know, animosity for the other party has always been, uh, uh, you know, it's always been with us. You know, my father, who is a Republican, you know, really disliked the Democratic Party, really disliked uh, Jimmy Carter. He did not dislike the neighbors across the street who voted for Jimmy Carter. What we've now seen in the country is that animosity and negative affect and distrustfulness towards nonpartisans, towards people who we perceive to be our political rivals, is now targeted at our fellow citizens, whereas it used to be targeted at party leaders and candidates. Sure, sure. And so one, one way that folks are trying to get past some of this is, is, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of deliberative democracy style groups. So kitchen table discussions, you sure. know, bringing people from across the spectrum together to have conversations and, and try to, uh, you know, get get past some of these differences or, or maybe see each other in, in, in a different way, maybe more as citizens. And I, I know you talk a, a good bit about um, deliberative democracy in the book, and I, I think you call it the, the better democracy approach to, right. to these problems. So um, is, is that an answer to some, to, to some of, of these things we're, we're seeing? Sure. So um, 
there's a there's a yes and no part of the answer, right? Um, so I I I count myself uh, as a democratic theorist as a deliberative democrat. So uh, I'm on board with you know with deliberative democracy as a theoretical approach to thinking about democratic legitimacy and political authority, and also to thinking about good democratic practice. So I'm uh, I'm a, a sort of a omnivorous kind of deliberative democrat. I'm I'm on board with the pro with the project in the in in uh, in the broadest. Uh, uh, sense and also um, have theorized it uh, in some of its particulars in some other work. Um, so the kinds of initiatives that you're thinking about, the sort of uh, the, the, the dinner table conversations initiatives, initiatives about deliberative polling and citizen assemblies and citizen juries and all the rest, those are all incredibly promising initiatives and the data that come out of um, uh, those experiments and those uh, endeavors strike me as really, really promising. Um, I am skeptical, though, uh, uh, about the prospects for these kinds of interventions, um, uh, which I would say are, are good, uh, necessary steps towards repairing democracy. I'm skeptical of those, uh, the, the claim that those steps are sufficient. And here's the reason why. Um, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, in lots of contexts, what it takes to prevent something bad from happening is different from what it takes to fix something bad once it's happened. And so there's a difference between prevention and cure. Uh, and we're familiar with this in all kinds of other uh, uh, contexts. There's an ongoing debate about this stuff. However, we do have good reason to think that once we are polarized, and I, by here this, I, I mean belief polarized, the, the, the cognitive phenomenon that goes along with the, the more familiar uh, political phenomenon. The belief polarization phenomenon is sort of like the yes man uh, syndrome. You surround yourself with yes men and you start becoming unduly confident in your own judgment and you become a more extreme and strident version of your former self. It looks as if cross-cutting deliberative conversations uh, are good ways to prevent further polarization. But under conditions where people are already polarized, exposure to even moderate, reasonable, civilly articulated expressions of the opposing view further contribute to the polarization. We have to be able in other, by, by means of other contexts to see one another as reliable coworkers, responsible parents, dependable neighbors, decent human beings. We need to be able to see each other as occupying these other kinds of roles, irrespective and without any consideration for partisan affiliation. It's almost as, it's almost as if what democracy needs is for us to be places where I can see you, Jenna, as a responsible, upright, you know, good person. And then later on, find out that you vote for the people I think are awful. <laughs> right. And then I could say, well, wait a minute. She's just mistaken about her politics. That doesn't mean that she's got horns coming out of her head. We're all, it, the way that our current um, ecosystem of democracy is, is structured now, we're all uh, living in an atmosphere where it is just it's simply too easy for us to accept a demonizing and, de and demeaning and infantilizing image of our political rivals. Sure. And so I think, you know, we can all maybe think of ways that 
we could maybe start to do some of these things, a kind of join something mantra, right? I play in a community band, for yeah. example, that, yeah. you know, um, but is it, is that the only way to, to kind of move in this direction? It, it also strikes me that maybe we all have some of these things already in our lives, but they just are maybe kind of more in the, the background because sure. we're on Twitter and, you know, doing all these other things that are more overtly political throughout the day. Right, right, right. So, um, yeah, I would I would say sort of two things. I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, the the book tries to the book is hopeful, uh, <laughs> but it, there are more than one juncture where I, I do kind of say, look, it looks like we're, we've painted ourselves into a corner now. Maybe there is no way out of this because maybe it's too late. But I hope not. Uh, so one thing I think is really important in uh, in, in trying to make progress and in, in putting politics in its place um, is that we recognize and acknowledge and be mindful of the fact that the um, the cognitive phenomenon that I call belief polarization doesn't discriminate among liberals and conservatives or rich people and poor people or well-educated people and not it doesn't discriminate. Part of our conception of what our political opposition is like, no matter what your conception is, no matter who you consider to be your political opponents, part of your conception of what the opposition is like is the result of this non-rational cognitive phenomenon. We have to recognize our own vulnerability. You know, I give talks about polarization uh, a lot, even before I started working on this book. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting when you go through the data about polarization, you know, you get a bunch of like-minded people together. They talk about the thing that they're like-minded about, and each one of them becomes a more extreme, you know, advocate of that view. And the the response to hearing about the phenomenon and laying out some of the, the data and what, what some of the, the more famous studies have found, almost invariably, people in the audience, upon hearing it in, in, in the first instance, say, oh, yeah, I totally see that. But they always see it as affecting only their political others. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We never, rivals. we never think that, that we are part of the problem. That's right. right. Yeah. And we never see our own vulnerability to these same forces. So, you know, Pew, uh, the Pew research center recently discovered uh, something that was, um, you know, depressing in some ways, not surprising in another, you know, the U S citizenry is sick and tired uh, of uh, all of the political wrangling and rancor and incivility and nastiness. They want to put an end to that. They want to see politicians be more cooperative uh, and civil towards one another. And then when you ask those uh, those citizens, okay, well, how do you explain? You know, how did the how did politics become so nasty? Their answer is the other side, <laughs> right? It's the other people. It's not my side. It's the other side that are so that, that are responsible for making politics so terrible. Like, oh, okay. Um, well, wh what should be done to make politics more civil? And the answer is, well, the other party just has to give my party what it wants. What I think the first step is to putting politics in its place is sort of recognizing that your conception of what the people, the rank and file citizens on the other side are like. That's the product of these phenomena. Maybe you need to recognize that. Um, and by the way, it's part of the, let me just say this, it's part of the profile of this cognitive phenomenon, uh, belief polarization, that not only do you become a more extreme version of yourself, you start to adopt more negative attitudes towards the people who you perceive to be different from yourself. And here's the crucial part. 
you also start to adopt an unreasonably um, uh, monolithic and unnuanced conception of what the other side is like. And you can even hear this in pronouncements among citizens and politicians when politicians talk about the Democrats or the Republicans as if liberals or conservatives are a monolith, as if there aren't, isn't a spectrum of opinion among liberals and conservatives. Um, now, there's less of a spectrum of opinion among the official party uh, uh, members of, uh, that represent liberals and conservatives in the country, but there's a pretty wide spectrum among liberals and conservatives, and they disagree about all kinds of things. But we're led to think that there's just one kind of person on the opposite side of the aisle uh, that is our political rival. And that's an unduly uh, homogenized, let's say, conception of how politics works. Yeah, sure, and it and it's usually the the more extreme or the the most extreme version exactly. of whatever that 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 political ideology has exactly. to be. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, Bob, I I feel like we've just scratched the surface of some of these arguments. Um, folks can can uh, pick up your book. You know, I, I also feel like we're maybe starting or at the the beginning of like a twelve step plan or something for uh, putting <laughs> politics in its place. And this, you know, step one is always to like realize that that there is a problem, and I think that we've clearly articulated that uh, here today. And uh, you know, folks can can pick up your book or or uh, check out your your TED talk to learn more uh, and maybe more about kind of where we go from here. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, so, Bob, thank you for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thank you, Jenna, for having me. It's been wonderful. Well, all very interesting. And, uh, you know, I think it might be a, a good place for us to wrap up not only this interview, but the whole season since we're going into the holidays, uh, thinking a little bit about how do we deal with the perennial problem we hear all about at this time of the year, how to deal with your uncle on the holidays who right. you disagree with politically. Or your uncle. If you're the uncle, then your nephew or niece. <laughs> right. Crazy left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, because really, because Talese, I think, is offering us a way to do this, which is different from what you hear from a lot of other places, mm -hmm. uh, including ourselves. Right. I think he's offering another way altogether, and that is maybe everybody get up from the table and go bowling. Or, or do something else. Talk about other talk stuff. Talk about sports. Right? Or, well, sports may not be the best idea, but uh, talk, talk about, about movies. Or what the, you know. Although even movies now are probably, right? right? right. Well, I was, you know, but regardless, I mean, his argument is, you know, your family is united by more than it is separable by politics. Right. And for you to talk about politics and highlight those points that separate you, make you different, push you apart. Exactly. Is is a is not only a mistake in terms of living in a democracy, it doesn't do justice to your own status as family members. Yep. And so um I, I, I think that's a very good uh point to make and I think it's you know it's not that's not like, oh, okay, let's just not talk about politics, right? Because there's going to be somebody who just is not going to be able to let it go, right? Somebody at that table is just going to make those <laughs> snide comments or those underhanded, you know, remarks. And, and everybody, so it's not like this is just this simple path, but it is another path. And if everybody just kind of agrees, my, um, my wife and my uncle differ politically by leaps and bounds. And when she came to visit him, she said, Jim, I love you, 
uh, and I don't want to argue. So let's just not talk about politics. And so they didn't, you know. And I think it can be done. It's just not. It's 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 probably for a Christmas dinner. It is probably a better way to pursue. Right. But what Talese is offering is something more fundamental to the state of American democracy and to and, human and that, beings. Right. And, yeah. And that what that is, is politics for. I mean, in other words, that this is not – we have to keep politics in its place if it's going to function well. And so we need to find these, um, these right, spa- because, free spaces. Right, because the the way that polarization has operated, this polarization of every aspect of our social and political lives, it means that we are increasingly sort of digging ourselves into this hole of feeling more and more connected and in agreement with those around us and see those outside of us as in more and more negative terms. And, you know, I'm not 100% convinced that finding ways to engage is, is the right path or the right strategy right now. But I do think that, you know, um, especially for families, it's, it's absolutely worth Well, and going into, going into an election year, it will be ever harder for people to not, right. to not focus right. on politics. Especially, you know, an election that, you know, no matter where you come down, you have to um, uh, admit it's one of the most consequential in decades. I would have said longer, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas, happy, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> on, that, on that note, we bring another season of Democracy Works to a close, mm-hmm. and thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our guests for. Uh, for joining us. Yeah, it's really gratifying to, to hear people listening and, and feeling like it's useful to them. Yeah, thank you again. Uh, thank you to you guys. Thank you to our colleagues at WPSU. And thank you all of you uh, for listening. And whatever you decide to do, if you follow politics this holiday season or don't, hope you hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll and see you back here in 2020. 2020. Yeah. Yep. See you in 2020. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.